0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston and this is another episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today I have Dr. Bernadette Barton with me to discuss her new book, The Pornification of America, How Ranch Culture is Burning Our Society, published this year in NYU Press. Dr. Bernadette Barton is Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Moorhead State University. She is the author of the book that we'll be discussing today, as well as Stripped More Stories from Exotic Dancers, which was published in 2017, and Pray the Gay Away, The Extraordinary Lives of Bible Belt Gays in 2014, both published in um, by, in fact, NYU Press. Her research and teaching explores contemporary issues of gender, sexuality, religion, culture, happiness, and the sex industry. Dr. Barton's new project examines forms of feminine power, marriage equality mobilization in Kentucky, and the relationship between happiness and transformation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Barton. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on New Books in Sociology. Excellent. Um, Could you tell me a little bit more about how you came to write this new book, Pornification of America, how Ranch culture is running our lives?
1: I would love to. So um, this book explores the phenomenon of ranch culture, which is our hyper-sexualized society Um, and the ranch culture suffers from what I discuss in the book as uh, a condition of inarticulation, which is that people don't have the language to talk about it very well. So how did I begin writing this book and why? Well, I started to notice ranch culture, um, I'd say approximately 20 years ago, (laughs) some time ago, and So what ranch culture is, is this phenomenon where elements of the sex industry filter into mainstream culture, things like stripper shoes and um, Brazilian waxes and thongs and twerking, um, where girls and women are told that the most important thing they can do is to be hot and sexy like a porn star or a stripper and this was really um something i noticed because i was working on my research on exotic dance with my book um stripped that you mentioned and so i was really aware of what actual strippers experience and what their lives are like so i I would be walking around and i'd look in payless shoes and i'd be like why is there a whole row of stripper shoes in payless so I, i was like this was and meanwhile my book on the lives of actual exotic dancers was not exactly a bestseller. It's not like people wanted to read about what dancers really thought about their work. They were more interest in, interested in getting a lap dance, the men in particular. So so this phenomenon was on my mind. I was paying attention to it. I was wondering about it. I was wondering why people weren't talking about it. Um, and then in 2006, Ariel Levy wrote a book on ranch culture that I thought was just absolutely fabulous. And I assigned it in all my classes. And I was focused on it. And so my work updates her work. Um, and also my work draws on interviews with people ranging from 18 to 80, actually, although the majority of the folks that I interviewed were millennials and in Generation Z. So one moment that it was really struck me that, that I became just really conscious of the fact that I needed to do more about raunch culture. I write about it in the book where I was in the, I was in the classroom. It was 2013. I'd been aggravated about it for years. I've been like, what is this? Why is nobody talking about this? What What is this compulsory sexualization, compulsory pornification? You know, why are people acting as though this is a good thing? When in fact, it's also a straitjacket for girls and women. Um, not to mention contributes to rape culture and sells itself under the false narrative of empowerment. So all these things are things I explore in the book. But this moment in the classroom in 2013, there was a young woman in the class and uh, we were talking about hookup culture and how hookup culture connects to rape culture. Um, And she had had a hookup with a boy and uh, the next morning he had penetrated her without her consent. And she said in the classroom that at just that moment, she realized that that was rape and um, she hadn't had the language to talk about it. And I felt like here is a f- gem- gender studies student and we are failing. If a gender studies student is not realizing that she's been sexually violated, what's going on in the rest of the world? So I felt just a real calling to, ra- to research and write about this issue. I felt that it was important to give something to young people to help them navigate through the wilderness of ranch culture, um, I feel like the culture is failing young people, and that they deserve better.
0: And then, what was uh, really surprising to me uh, in this book is how some of your uh, some of your students in gender studies saw it as being a problem that had always existed and will always exist, and maybe uh, not knowing necessarily how to. Um, change the situation. But in fact, uh, well, please let me know if I'm wrong, but Ranch culture hasn't always been around. and even if it, uh, even when it emerged, it wasn't uh, the same as how it exists today. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And that is a really important distinction to explore. So this particular, but it's not surprising that my students think that, especially the young ones, because ranch culture is all they known, all they've known. They've grown up their entire lives. Ranch culture is culture. So when, when compulsory sexualization is the culture, you're the fish and it's the water. You don't see the water. So yes, one of my interview subjects thought that. She's like, yeah, ranch culture has always been around, and I was like, hmm, not. I didn't say that to her, but in the book, I said no. In fact, um. Branche culture is, you know, this idea that you should make yourself sexy, that women should make themselves sexy for men actually originated in the 1920s um, with the beginning of courtship and dating uh, when men and women, young men and women would leave the home. To court and women exchanged their sexual attractiveness for men's dollars, but ra- so that's like the beginning of women looking sexy as opposed to yes. just looking beautiful. Uh, but raunch culture, as we see it today, I date to the mid 1990s when the internet became more ascendant in all of our lives. When most of us started getting computers, were logging on, had email, and then of course there was internet pornography. Uh, and so ranch culture is the offspring of internet pornography. It draws on the ideas, the tropes, the imagery of internet porn, um, and filters in into mainstream society. So the more internet in our lives, the more ranch culture. And you can see that as we go from dial-up to... Um, to other, you know, to other, to the YouTube's channels, to mobile phones, to social media. Um, so you see a lot of bronze culture on places like Instagram and TikTok, for example, along with just in mainstream culture in movies and television and um, advertisements and magazines, for example.
0: And how has this new erotic marketplace continued to develop new ways to sexually objectify women?
1: Okay, so another excellent question. So before raunch culture, women were contending with the beauty myth, something that Naomi Wolf wrote about in published a book uh, in 1991. And so a lot of older women are familiar with the idea of the beauty myth that we that there's this impossible beauty standard that we're supposed to meet that we see in magazines and in television, that we're supposed to look like models and to judge ourselves according to how well we fit or do not fit the standard. But what raunch culture does in the erotic marketplace is add a dimension to the beauty myth where not only are you supposed to be impossibly beautiful if you're a, a girl or a woman, you're also supposed to be sexy and hot like a porn star or a stripper. And sometimes that means you're you're willing to have sex, but often it just means you look sexy. It's about the performance of looking sexy as opposed to actually feeling any kind of sexual pleasure or even sexual desire for something else. So that's another reason why raunch culture is so problematic. It's because it it encourages participants to focus on the appearance of sexy, not the actual experience of feeling sexy.
0: Uh, so selling a product rather than uh, em- embodying a- an actual feeling or sense of sexiness.
1: Right, or, and then the product yeah. is yourself. The product is your own body. So if you think about the uh, the idea of the male gaze, uh, which I also talk about in The Pornification of America. So the male gaze also predates ranch culture. Uh, and the male gaze is a film theory. So it's a G-A-Z-E. Yes. Uh, and it's the the uh, it's a theory in which that looks at much of media as being shot through the lens of a heterosexual male eye. So what the camera's looking at is what heterosexual men are imagined to want to look at it. So the male gaze um, has been affecting the way we view media and how women view themselves, but it's only been with social media and digital phones that women have been able to easily create the male gaze on themselves to self-objectify and recreate the male gaze on their own body
0: which is a a, potentially a product of uh cultural construction rather than individual construction or production of a product it's uh uh, it's something that was created by somebody other than oneself and the exchange may even be more than a monetary exchange and uh can, can be hostile many times
1: Yes. Well, I I imagine that a lot of young women who are taking sexy selfies would say they are doing it because they want to and it makes them feel good. Um, But it's it's hard to separate out that individual interaction with the culture from this hegemonic force of ideology that's telling you you're supposed to be sexy and this is how you're popular and this is how you get likes and this is, you know, the way to success.
0: Yeah, it's an ongoing struggle that I uh, that I continue that I continue to bring into the classroom. Looking at the, you know, is it structure or is it agency, and it's right. both, <laughs> right, right. So what what is e-bile? That is a, another um, term that the uh, concept that you brought up in this uh, in your book that I wasn't familiar with, and it caught my eye.
1: Oh, great. Um, Well, talking about ranch culture is complex uh, because it's really multifaceted. uh, And ranch culture, you know, is very much internet culture these days or a big chunk of internet culture. Uh, And a lot of what you see on the internet, well, you will not a lot, you will often come across e-bile, which is hateful, misogynist, bigoted, aggressive, uh, obscene comments that are said to minority group members, uh, to women and to people of color, particularly women of color. So these are just hateful hateful. So you just think about the comment sections of uh, lots of news articles or, or and lots of different kinds of online sites when people can post anonymously. Uh, the, so it's the work of trolls. Ebile is the work of trolls. So ebile connects with ranch culture in that eBile we we get used to eBile. So we so before it might have been shocking if you think about um, and I actually I have a chapter on uh, Trump and Trump being a ranch culture president. So if you think about Trump saying, uh, you know, I can grab women by the pussy, that sounds pretty bad. But if you're acclimated to eBile, where you're used to hearing much, much worse kinds of comments. And I don't know if you want me to share any examples. Um, in contrast, grabbing a woman by the pussy, as terrible as it is, it's much less than saying X. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. And uh, that we can definitely continue to uh, explore this chapter on politics and ranch culture. Uh, not only was it Donald Trump in his presidency, but it was also people whom he hired in uh, into government. Uh, particularly, I think you mentioned uh, the CEO or past CEO of uh, of Hardee's, and uh, uh, who uh, who had really really kind of surprising uh, commercials for the selling of hamburgers and se- even sexualizing. Uh, something as, uh, you know, every day as as, as a drive through meal at, at Hardee's. Could you talk a bit more about this?
1: Sure. Well, I opened the book describing a couple of Carl's Jr. and Hardee's commercial, which I'm sure most people who are listening to this have seen. It's commercials in which some, you know, very attractive woman, maybe a famous woman like Kim Kardashian, is eating a burger and practically making out with it. So it's like the she there's like the burger is 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 sexualized. She sexualized, the burger is sexualized. It's honestly kind of weird if you take it apart. <laughs> um, so the creator of these commercials, the mastermind behind it is Andrew Puster. and he was uh, Donald Trump's nominee for labor secretary, uh, you know, right back in December of 2016. Uh, He didn't actually become labor secretary because he was disqualified for other issues. Um, But when the press, including CNN, were discussing his nomination, he had them post a picture of of a blonde woman in a flag, a, 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 a American flag bikini as his photo to represent him in the public which was just super strange and striking. I mean, just think about, if you think about the people you know who are in positions of authority in your life, you know, someone who's like president of a bank or the PTA or the principal of a school, you can imagine their headshot in the local paper or the national news being a sexualized photo of a woman. That, that would be odd. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that wasn't something anybody was much talking about at the time.
0: And you know, it's uh, in some ways it's uh, while it's uh, disappointing, uh, or saddening to see how ranch culture seeps into politics, national politics particularly. In some ways, it's it's not surprising because the boundaries aren't so rigid to protect from such ranch culture to seep into politics. Am, am I right? When, am yes, I you're on
1: absolutely that? right. And ranch culture is not a Republican phenomenon. I mean, it is on both sides of the aisle. So just like, you know, the, the student that I mentioned before who, who said, oh, it's always been here. It's it's the water and we're the fish. We're used to ranch culture. We we, we just, we see it and we know something is wrong, but we don't, or some people know something's wrong, um, but they don't really have the words to talk about it very well. Um I find that there's a real generational difference in talking about ranch culture, too. And I really quizzed my interview subjects about this. So I remember talking to one young... No, actually to several people about what would your grandparents say? What do your grandparents say when one of those Hardee's commercials come on? Like, what do they say? They see that. Do they comment on it? Do they not comment on it? What happens when that happens? And you're together having dinner. And um, a few of them said something along the lines of, well, they won't comment or... My grandma might say something like, "I don't understand why that girl needs to drag around like that. That's just not becoming." You know, so they would, so the grandparents would individualize the problem instead of seeing ranch culture as a social construct. They would say, "There's a woman who's being sexy in a way that's inappropriate and that's immoral and bad. And I hope you don't act like that individual person
0: there." And uh, not only is ranch culture and politics. But it it's also seeped its way into Christianity and and how does Christianity and religion play in the perpetuation of ranch culture?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's so again ranch culture is everywhere, so you can see it um, in the it's important to be hot ethos like like the phrase modest is hottest. So this the this um, several of my interview subjects talked about seeing those pastors and people in positions of authority in evangelical circles um, talking about sex in ways that seemed inappropriate and raunchy, as long as it was in the context of heterosexual marriage. So one young woman told me the story about going to a, um, a revival, and it was for the Greek students, so it was for fraternity and sorority students, and there was a preacher there who gave a sermon, and she said it was very much kind of like a hellfire and damnation sermon, uh, and then he concluded it by saying he was going to come ho- go home and have sex with his, with his hot wife. Like that's how he ended uh, the sermon. <laughs> so yeah. she was just like, what the heck? Like, what is this about here? You know, with but my you, super hot wife.
0: <laughs> but you wouldn't see the same thing for for female pastors or uh, female figures in the church that talking about their hot husbands and, and why not? Yes.
1: And I exactly explored that with one of my respondents. I said, well, what if what if it's a woman talking about her, her super hot husband and going home with, with have sex with him? And uh, the young man I spoke to about that, his name is Timothy. He, he was like, oh no, they wouldn't do that because it would be it would be considered homo- homophobic or homoerotic. It would open the door to homoeroticism was what he said. And I was a little bit confused. I'll be honest. Cause I was like, how is a heterosexual woman talking about how hot her husband is homoerotic? I <laughs> Actually, it like took me a minute and I didn't, I didn't say that in the interview, but then I was like, Oh, could you talk a little bit more about that, Timothy? How is that? And he said that, you know, when a woman that, that Considering a man as a sexual object opens the door for everyone, for the men in the in the crowd, to 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 sexualize the man, and that is an extension of homoeroticism. Um, and then that would be a problem. Not that, so they were not. It wasn't that it was a problem that a woman's being objectified. It was a problem that it might be homoerotic if it was done by a woman to a man so that was just a really fascinating distinction that he clarified for me there
0: yeah yeah that's interesting and uh yeah it's it's something curious to me and and something that i would like to explore further exactly what it means homoerotic, erotic and how it uh, uh you know how it manifests how it what are some of the consequences if such actions were carried out in the church and and they're not by and large? I don't hear women talking about, but just because I don't hear it doesn't mean that it's not happening. But
1: well, in evangelical circles, yeah. women are often not in positions of authority to begin with. Correct. So that's Although, already that's already not happening. Uh, and yes. then it's it's normal to objectify women. People don't perceive that even as sinful. It's as long as it's happening within a godly marriage and is not perceived of as sinful. If, if, if women are made to contemplate the idea that a woman might be sexually attractive, the sinful part that's happening is because the men are having to contemplate another man potentially being sexually attractive, which opens yes. the, ador, the door to them experiencing a homoerotic idea, which then leads them into sin.
0: So it's boundary maintenance, it's trying, yeah. And patriarchy. And patriarchy, yes.
1: And homophobia.
0: Yes. So this begins in childhood. We talk about a fish in water um, and about how a fish in this water knows nothing else. What age do you think the children are first exposed to this raunch culture that we are talking about today?
1: Earlier than they can perceive an image, literally as early as they look at a screen. So um, I don't know about if you have young people in your life, but I know the young people, the little, little people in my life, they get Phones or they get tablets, they get screens, really, really young. So I think that, so can they comprehend the images? I think that, well, you know, I guess I don't know a lot about childhood development, but I would say, I mean, we hear stories, we see, we see uh, TikToks of four-year-olds twerking, you know, people are taking videos of that, and for a giggle. So that means that that four-year-old is seeing the culture and reproducing it. Not that she understands what it means, but that she's she's encountering. Or he's encountering ranch culture that young.
0: Yes, and I remember the one of the stories uh, about YouTube about a young girl um, first searching for uh, it was uh, some music uh, artist, and then just basically going down a uh, a rabbit hole, finding herself into pornography from from an inno- uh, what was an innocent YouTube search.
1: Yes, yeah, that's in the internet porn chapter, which is also hugely significant in the lives of the people that I interviewed. Um, but I think she was seven or eight, if I remember. It, it was the mom describing her daughter's experience. And, uh, and the girl had opened, had done a YouTube search for Justin Bieber. Uh, and then it was like, and it was like those thumbnails on the side that walked her into Justin Bieber kissing Selena Gomez, or Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez, and then eventually to them kissing, then to some big, huge, hardcore porn uh, video.
0: And in some ways, it's not surprising. I have a seven-year-old daughter whom I, uh, who, she uses a computer and goes to YouTube to watch videos. And even racism in, uh, on YouTube isn't uh, so difficult to find. She found a, a Barbie skit where it was black Barbie and white Barbie, and black Barbie Barbie was poor Barbie, while the mm-hmm. white Barbie was, was rich Barbie. And uh, I caught on to it and tried to, stop it, although it is difficult to protect to protect children from being exposed to such a culture, is it not?
1: Oh, yeah. And I know that parents are doing the best that they can. That's an, another reason I wrote the book is so that parents would have, have something, have a guide, a resource to help them think about and negotiate the culture. I mean, I hope a lot of parents read it because I, I think that there's a big generational difference in folks understanding and experience of it. But yes, it's horrible. I mean, you can put all the controls that you can come up with on these devices. But, you know, there's always n- new ways to get around the control, like new new programs from the institutions creating the content. And then curious kids can see can may, or maybe a kid at school shows it to other kids on the playground or in the classroom. So it's just it's it's pretty harrowing for parents to manage all that. I mean, I don't mean to create a moral panic about it. I know that, you know, we'll make it through this, but I, I just don't think people kind of understand the gravity of of how it affects a person to be exposed to this kind of content and just the impact that, you know, so much exposure to social media and how social media um, can sway us in certain ways, you know, what the long-term consequences of that
0: are. And then it, you know, if, if a person is exposed to it at, a, at an early age and start to become part of this popular culture, it, it likely persists into middle school and high school, uh, in the relationship that is had between boys and girls. You write about, uh, boys who share explicit pictures of their penises through, um, through Apple drop, through, um, cell phones dropping an image to others or, um, sharing it through other explicit means like email prior to cell phones, correct?
1: Yes, that's true. I, I have a chapter on sexting and dick pics, which again isn't the sexting is new and the dick pics are even newer. So that's really confusing for older generations. So yes, there's like the students are sending explicit young people are sending explicit photos to one another and boys are sending unsolicited dick pics, not just boys though, men are sending unsolicited dick pics to women at just ridiculously huge rates. Um, And there's just, there seems to be some confusion about why that is the case since women universally don't want them and dislike them. I mean, I'm not talking about one that's requested or in the context of a loving relationship. I'm talking about somebody, yeah, like a non-consensual dick pic being said, that's like women don't want that. Um, And why men and boys continue to send that and masturbation videos uh, when unasked is a, is a question I explore in that chapter.
0: As well as how girls uh, are starting to participate in self-objectification in order to create uh, a likeness or a sense of likeness in social media. Uh, it, it's the, that likeness, sense of likeness, I see it as a new form of cultural currency a way to gain social capital through people liking or putting a chili pepper flame response to a photograph. Uh, could you talk more about this culture?
1: Yes. So yes, girls learn early on that a way to popularity and social capital is to self-objectify, to look sexy. They do know when to post. Um, I think I the, the, like a good posting time is you know, in the evening after such and such. Honestly, I don't remember. I don't actually know the right. I've been told, but I forgot. But yes, they know when you're supposed to post, when you'll get the most traffic. They take down photos that don't get enough likes. They will send um, sexy photos to boys that they like. So boys are not the only ones sending unsolicited sexy photos. Girls do it too. Um, one difference is that usually the boys don't, the Object like that the boys like it more than the girls like an unsolicited sexy photo. Um, but yes, they're they are they learn that from the culture. They learn that and and they're rewarded for it for the most part.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting how it's becoming a uh, you know a fad with being a uh, try to think uh, with popularity becomes a, a person becomes a social influencer and and it seems that uh, you know even my seven year old said well that's a social influencer dad I said well I didn't know that was a job now of course I know that's a job but it it hasn't always been a job and it's interesting how it's becoming a a new career that people can go into as a uh, uh, as a profession.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Instagram influencers. I have a photo of them. They're they're often yes, they definitely. Um, will illustrate ranch culture and will have many sexy photos of themselves. But I would say the Instagram influencers also are always, they're they're working so hard to portray this lifestyle of success and happiness and perfect beauty in addition to the ranch stuff. And I think that is also just really hard for for people to look at and compare themselves to and feel inadequate when they don't, they, they're not having a vacation in Greece at the, on this beautiful island, and they can't get the, the perfect photo of them and their boyfriend. And so so all that stuff is complicates people's experience of the culture.
0: And, Bernadette, one of the things that I like most about your book is not only is it the research that you have throughout the, the whole book, but then also this discussion that we uh, – had uh, as part of what we talked about today, which was uh, an opportunity for parents to read and to um, sort of be somewhat of a self-help in, in, in helping parents understand ranch culture and what it is and how they can work with their children to uh, reduce it as much as possible or, um, or even eliminate the harms that may exist uh, to their children for getting involved in, in such a ranch culture that that persists. So um what advice would you give today uh for listeners uh when they experience launch culture in the everyday in everyday life or um how they might work with their children and uh in this area
1: oh that's that's a great question and I do spend the last chapter talking about how we can transform ranch culture. So what I would say to people is to find your inner guidance. So the problem with ranch culture is not that it's sexy; it's that it's sexist. That it it promotes one kind of sexiness, a sexiness modeled after internet porn, that is a patriarchal product, um, <clears throat> ruthlessly and relentlessly. So, so what what we need to do, what I recommend, the path out of ranch culture is seeing that, just, just start with perceiving it. Do you see ranch culture? Do you, do you perceive it? Do you agree it exists? (laughs) Do you, do you see it in the world around you? And if you see it, then what do you think about it? Like, what are your ideas about ranch culture? What do you think about making sexy selfies? Do you really, if you're a young woman, do you really want to wear a micro mini skirt? and like super high heels that you can't even walk in or sit down in that you're uncomfortable in all night. Like if if that's what you want, good, make sure you're following your own inner guidance, follow your own narrative, but you have to be able to know what your inner guidance is before you can follow it. And part of that is going to be perceiving ranch culture and being willing to critique it. Um, What's also going to be extremely valuable for young people and for parents and for teachers is a comprehensive sex education that is focused on not just not this, this horrible abstinence only sex ed where you you know you don't have it to you're in a heterosexual marriage, but a real sex ed that talks about consent and pleasure and um, same sex sexuality um, and birth control. And you know how to negotiate sexual acts, how to know what you like, you know how to be safe. So a really good sex ed taught in school, um, alongside comprehensive gender studies education. So that helps us deconstruct traditional gender roles. That helps us, you know, recognize, support, celebrate all different kinds of gender identities. That. Helps us critique patriarchy and take ownership of our own lives. So, better sex ed, gender studies education, seeing ranch culture, critiquing ranch culture, being willing to speak about it and challenge it uh, with the people you're around. Not in a hostile way, not an aggressive way, not in a polarizing way that's, you know, just going to raise hackles. But uh, in, in, you know, when you can and when when you think you can make a difference. So, so those are some of the ideas that I talk about in the book.
0: Excellent. That's uh, uh, definitely some stuff that I also bring to the classroom and sex and gender. I was talking uh, just the other day about getting into the conversation, starting off with the conversation, building a relationship uh, before discussing these difficult conversations with others uh, who may not even realize uh, their own sexist behaviors. Uh, you know, it might even be something as subtle as benevolent sexism where uh, it's intended to be a nicety, but it's, uh, uh, it has negative implications associated with such, beha- such, such a nicety.
1: Yes. And I get that it's hard to talk about, hard to challenge people on sexist behaviors, especially unconscious sexist beliefs, actions, and behaviors, because I've been teaching gender and women's studies for 25 years. So I have a yeah. lot of experience, uh, introducing people to these ideas and dealing with people who are defensive. Um, but I, I love, I think that one of the things that's emerged in the past few years, and certainly, um, you know, with, with the recent wave of racial awareness, is this idea that when, when somebody observes something in you that isn't perfect, that where you're making something that's unconsciously racist or sexist or homophobic, you know, and someone points it out to you, the, the best response is just to say, thanks, Wow. I appreciate your time spent helping me think about that. And that's it. That's all you got to do. Like, that's all you, you know, even if you don't agree, you can just leave it there and ponder it and explore it later. I mean, there's no need to have a hissy fit. Just be like, Oh yeah, thanks. I didn't know that. Now I know a little something more.
0: Yes. Well, thank you for your time today. uh, Bernadette, I, it was uh, a great opportunity to talk to you again. And I, um, I hope to have you on the show for for your next project, which leads us to this final burning question that I always have. What are you working on next? What well, I have, on
1: <laughs> that's a good question. I have a couple of, of new project ideas in my head that I'm, um, well, I have, I'm working on a project on marriage equality mobilization in Kentucky. So I'm working on a project uh, around the events with Kim Davis. If you recall back in 2015, she was the county clerk who denied marriage licenses to uh, same-sex partners trying to get married. So yes. I have a project that's ongoing on that. And I'm also beginning a project on feminine power, which is uh, looking... So in our society, in our culture, we we often see power in very patriarchal and masculine terms. It's about force and control and domination and winning the game. But But the fact is there are other forms of power that I call feminine, like yielding, and um, vulnerability and creating connections that people, including men and women, use all the time that they don't label power. So what would happen if we, were, we, if we looked at those behaviors, reframed them as power, gave femininity some street cred, how could that be transformative? So that's what my new project is, one of my new projects is exploring.
0: Yeah, I, I think of uh, uh, Arlie child and with the uh, you know the the second shift and the emotional labor that women put out and mm-hmm. and how valuable it is but often isn't uh, you know isn't on the rector scale because it's not uh, it's not it's not paid work but those those skills that are associated with the emotional labor that is uh, put out largely by women but uh, somewhat by men in twenty first century America still not to the extent that men should be contributing by and large. But uh, but those those are some things that I think of when when you talk about feminine power.
1: You're right. I write about emotional labor as what you know as a dimension of it. So good catch there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading that book and having you on the show uh, show again uh, here soon, probably uh, a year or so down the road, right?
1: <laughs> Maybe a little longer, but I hope that Ex- would be ambitious. <laughs> 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 Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on the show.
0: Thank you. And again, this is New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Have a great day.
1: Thank you. You too.